Hello everybody, welcome back to the Tokyo Fintech Podcast. Today we welcome David Breer, who's the Group CEO at 11FS, based in London, and a well-known disruptor, innovator, and digital evangelist. So let's get the show on the road. Hello, David. How are you? Good morning. Very well, thank you. How are you? Very well, too. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time. Great offer, and thanks for putting us out on LinkedIn. I couldn't resist and try and get your perspective then. Yeah, no problem at all. I mean, there's a lot going on, but trying to continue doing as much as we can to support communities anywhere on the planet at this stage in terms of the stuff that's happening. How are you doing, though? It's obviously uh, quite a weird time, isn't it? How's everything from your neck of the woods? Many of the companies in Japan are still much more of a face-to-face and presence culture takes them a little bit longer to get used to it. What plays into this a bit in a positive way is that folks were preparing for the Olympics, of course, and they were telling everybody to stay at home during the Olympics. So there was a bit of the infrastructure prepared to actually allow this and ease people into that. So if this had happened last year, I think you would have seen many companies that don't even have the technology for people to log in remotely. A lot of the banks in London actually said something similar. I mean, during the 2012 Olympic Games, there Mm. was tests to remove congestion within London. For one week, many of the banks actually moved to do more significant working. Like it was nowhere near 100%, and it was only for a week. But they, so they've had a couple of trial runs at this anyway. But people seem to be getting into a good pattern of it now, though, I have to say. They've adopted it. Necessity is the greatest sort of spur of innovation, isn't it? Now that you have to, people are finding out a way, aren't they? Communities can be continued online. I think anonymous communities work perfectly online. Communities where people are trying to shape identity or really learn from other people or Mm -hmm. just the warmth you can get from being around a group of people who are so passionate about the subject matter in the way that you are. That works best face-to-face and I think will always work best face-to-face. So there's a place for digital, but humans are pretty good, right? Definitely. One of the Japanese minister come into our office not so long ago, actually. He was minister in finance and brought some sake in. And honestly, it was the smoothest sake that I've ever tasted in my entire life. I've got a real taste for it now. It's definitely something when we're not in lockdown, I'll be looking for, for sure. With 11FS, you did work for Standard Chartered in Hong Kong, right? Yeah, Hong Kong, Singapore, various different places that they're at. I mean, the, the thing in Hong Kong was really, really interesting. You know, they're, they're actually a really great company. Um, Samir, who runs APAC, Mary, who runs Hong Kong specifically, are very, very passionate about actually delivering real value to their consumers. So for us, it was, they're really easy people to work with. Um, Dennis Govan over there, who's the, the CEO of Mox, I actually knew when he was back at Garantee Bank as well. He is one of the most entrepreneurial bankers that you'll kind of ever kind of come across. Like he's got a, a work ethic like nobody else I've ever really come across, but a real relentless focus on making things happen. And the product that's now built it is great. Um, there's a really great culture in that team and a really get great team there as well. So they're doing a really, really good job. You know, it's interesting more and more of those types of projects are happening because organizations sort of see that the way to the future is by disrupting themselves rather than waiting for other people to come along and do it to them. So for me, seeing the willingness in, like say, Mary and Samir, but even up to Bill as the the CEO, I think organizations that you can see that will succeed are the ones that haven't just ossified around the success that they had to get them to where they are and are continually looking for threats and opportunities to evolve. I think as we've seen with Corona, then different things can be used as the catalyst for 
very significant change for the, in organizations. And, you know, in this instance, those guys have used the threat of the future and everything that's kind of happening around them as a way to challenge themselves and prove to themselves that actually, again, I will say this, it's not what you do, it's the way that you do it. And so much of Mox started with the way in which you did it and the way in which it was set up. And that's really why with such a, you know, a, a small team in comparison to the rest of the bank able to do such amazing things at this stage. Okay, so we need to get you over to Tokyo then as well. We need some innovation here too in the banking sector. My colleague actually, so Jason Bates, who was my deputy CEO here, co-founded Starling, co-founded Monzo, was actually over in Tokyo about six months ago. You know, I think there's some really interesting opportunities to, to do some really interesting things out in that way. And uh, like I say, it's a pretty amazing culture out there. And the, the mix, I think, of the, the traditional values and technology really is what digital banking is all about. As a country, I think it's very ready for this type of change. I think with any of these changes, it always comes down to me, the, the regulatory framework and the competitive landscape that's there, because there's no shortage of talent, whether it's creative yeah. talent or technological talent. The spark always comes from making sure that the regulatory climate is such that actually allows new organizations to challenge older organizations in a controlled way. Because it's one thing doing it for a random social network, challenging Facebook and Twitter and whatnot. But when it's people finances, then actually it needs to be done in a very controlled way. From my perspective, I always point to other industries that have done it way better than financial services for such a long time. If you look at all of the changes that have happened in the UK, they came off the back of Smart Walport's recommendations within the regulatory framework, who really hasn't really worked in financial services and, and is actually more pharmaceuticals and healthcare. The pharmaceutical industry can create new drugs and take them to market without killing millions and millions of people. Then banks can create new products and services without creating more risk within the network. These things are possible, but again, it's the way in which you do it rather than necessarily what it is that you do. To a certain extent, the innovation in pharmaceuticals also happens outside of the big companies. Get the innovative biotechs that starting the research, developing drug to a certain point, and then they get acquired because it's so expensive to bring the drug and ultimately to a global scale. Is this something comparable that you see ultimately with fintechs and incumbents? You know, the old argument is always innovation and distribution, right? If the, the old organizations, you know, the big incumbents can be that distribution and let the younger, more nimble organizations create innovations to get them to that point. I think like you say, within the pharmaceuticals industry, particularly the amount of capital required to not only have the idea and get to the point where you've got a patent and a defendable drug, but then actually just purely the trials process of actually getting it through human trials and getting it to the point where it's accredited to go to market is incredibly expensive. You know, this is why Johnson Johnson and these guys are well versed in setting those things up. I think the difference here really is that route to market for those very large organizations within the pharmaceutical industry is pretty efficient in terms of what they do. They're very good at that. They have the processes, the operational capability and the technology in place to actually facilitate those things. In banking, it's not that way. I think if, if you gave a big bank a billion pounds and said, here's the chocolate box of fintechs, buy the ones you think are good, doing something with it afterwards would really be the challenge because you could buy a fantastic peer-to-peer -peer lender, you could buy a fantastic KYC system, you could buy a new core banking system, all of these things. Probably not have too much money spare after a billion pounds, but then actually integrating and weaving all of those things into a tapestry of a great service for your customers is really the really difficult thing to do, let alone generating something that actually means something, you know, gives meaning to it from a consumer perspective. So while there are lots of laterals around reducing risk when testing, I think the banking industry have got, and financial services as a whole, you know, throwing insurance into the mix here as well. I think they've got some real specific challenges. And most of them, if I'm honest with you, 
you, you know, a lot of people talk about technology and a lot of people talk about regulatory pressures. I think most of them are cultural. If you can establish the mentality, the entrepreneurial spark within those organizations that actually are, I mean, it, it sounds trife to call it a can-do attitude. It's the type of thing you would say to a four-year-old who's getting out of school, right? But actually, if we can create that spark of painting the picture and creating the future, then actually you find people start to act and shape and deliver in a very different way. And that, if I'm honest with you, when you look at the trends towards many more people starting greenfield organizations, um, that isn't a regulatory thing. It isn't a technological thing. It's mostly a cultural one. I mean, I'm a firm believer that 50 people who are who love what they do and who are really aligned culturally can do more than tens of thousands of people who are not. And actually, this is really what fintech is shining a light on. It's um, It ain't what you do, it's the way that you do it. Coming back to the product angle, I always start my presentation saying the last invention in banking was the ATM, which was Barclays in 1967. And since then, we haven't really seen much new. And the way we're thinking about products hasn't really changed. The current new banks, when you look at N26, have Mambo underneath, great product, but it's also something that still predefines a product in a classic banking sense. Will we see a generation of neo banks that will actually completely redefine what a banking product is and what would be the enabler for that? There's probably a few different angles to kind of answer that question. So if I, if I start with the sort of where we are, I mean, arguably, there's been so much talk about digital banking, but I honestly don't think we've seen digital banking. I think we've seen digitized banking. And I think there are good reasons for that in some sense. I mean, if you look at the incumbent organizations, digitized banking is there because it's their frame of reference that they understand. You know, they've taken branch-based banking or telephony banking or pieces of paper that look very similar and taken them into the world that they felt was right at the time. Nobody really could have predicted back when this really started that digital would be everything. Digital was a channel. You know, it was a distribution point for the products that you've had for 200 or 300 years, depending on which organization you're sort of pointing at. Um, and unfortunately, I think the whole the whole system is set up to continue products in the way that they are. Uh, I mean, if you look at the way in which organizations are, are fundamentally set up, I blame McKinsey for most things, but I think it was a 60, 1963 study by McKinsey, which basically the banks were asking them how they should structure themselves, given they're doing so great, given their mergers and acquisitions, given they're getting bigger. And the suggestion was to organize around products. So we've organized around products. The regulator regulates by specific financial instruments. And then what all that happens now is that manifests itself up to humans. When the human was the interface between the other humans, that actually there was a very good service between what those financial instruments were that were created and actually how you weave those financial instruments together to conduct your day-to-day -day life. Sadly, the reality of most geographies banking right now is given the reduction of humans between the interface between the customer and the technology, now the consumer is having to do more of that work to understand, well, what is an APR? It, like, should this go on my mortgage or should this be a loan or should I use my credit card for this thing? So the long standing of banks being the, the most trusted, educated, best sources of reason of how to maximize your financial well-being are just fallen away over the last decade as digital and digitized banking has become much more prevalent. So that's for the big incumbent organizations, I think is really the challenge. And that's why it comes back to a mindset shift of digitized and digital are fundamentally different things. And if you keep trying to digitize paper out of it and remove processes to digitize the process that you've got, you're never going to realize the potential. And that comes back to exactly what you said, which is if you're solely moving what you have into a digitized world, 
world that actually every silo of your product in the back office of your organization becomes an unbearable operational cost. You know, we're at a state now where given its loans are regulated, credit cards are regulated, mortgages are regulated slightly differently, suddenly we've got monolithic architecture in the back office of all these organizations that does probably 60 or 70% of the same thing with some slight nuances and some slightly different vendors. I mean, even like you say, some of the newer sort of core banking systems that are there are based on monolithic architectures and different product engines for different pieces, which for me makes totally no sense given the world that we live in and the, you know, the commoditization around cloud technology. So I think when you go to though the newer players, there's an element here of what they can do and what their abilities are and the right thing to do in order to have something that is understandable and buyable by the customers in the market. If you went to my mum right now and said, hey, so I can change your savings rate based on your spending power that would then knock off the percentage points on your mortgages that would give you extra rewards based on the savings that you've got in this account. She'd be like, well, that blows my mind, but I don't want that. Can I just have a credit card, please? So, you know, how you bring consumers along on this journey is really, really, really important. So whether it's N26, whether it's Monzo, whether it's Starling, whether it's Mox, uh, you know, all of these players, I think, are probably in second gear with what they can do. And the reality of where they can get to, they can play a major part in evolving the market towards these things. I mean, we talk about what the difference is between digitized and being truly digital. And for us, you know, truly digital really is about, I really don't care what product it is. It doesn't really matter to consumers. They don't really understand the difference between a loan and a mortgage and a credit card. And actually, is it the job of those organizations to spend so much time educating people to them? Or is it to give them the advice that means they come out of the situation best? You know, the regulator has been looking, globally regulators have been looking for people to bridge that gap and replace that gap that humans being taken out of this process has, has really, really left. But I, I think it's going to be an interesting one because when you look at the challenges, some of them are definitely setting themselves up like very small versions of very big banks. And I think are going to bump into that limitation of where digitized and digital sits really, really quickly. For the big incumbent organizations, when you look at the challenge that they have, if you're the CEO of Wells Fargo or Standard Charter or HSBC or, or whoever, the thing that's keeping you up at night is not the widget you can't build. It's your operating cost you can't do anything about. And that for me is the most terrifying thing because if banks keep building in silos, their operating cost is always going to be multiple billions just to keep the lights on. And when I come back to that saying again, it ain't what you do, it's the way that you do it. And if the way that you do it requires your organization to spend ridiculous amounts of money every year to maintain an IT estate that people may have retired at this stage who actually constructed it, what is required is is really deep-seated technological change. And I hope Corona will be the catalyst for a lot of these things that were optional or hoping that they could change when it comes to core banking or perspectives on services and how these things kind of interweave. I'm hoping now we're at the level where people realize that digital is just, it's not optional. This is the future of your business, but it's the present too. So we touched upon quite a few items out of your book, uh, How to Build a Bank. You wouldn't have written it with 11FS if there weren't many people out there who actually want to build a bank. So why does everybody want to build a bank suddenly? With any content that we do, we follow the process of document rather than create, if that makes sense. So for us, there's plenty of organizations out there now who are, I mean, in the in the US alone, there's what 18,000 financial services organizations, I think 5,000 banks and lots of different uh, community banks. I mean, globally, what we're seeing is people realizing that the way in which they've approached these things before when it comes to digital transformation and the evolution of what their organization does, the aspiration 
expectation of what they wanted to get to and the reality of where they've been left at the end of that process are very, very, very different things. Mm -hmm. So for us, having done this over the last four years, you know, 11FS has ticked over our fourth birthday a couple of weeks ago. Very strange one on lockdown, I have to say. It's hard to celebrate uh, properly when you're all stuck at home. Having existed for the last four years, we've worked with organizations in Singapore, Grab in Singapore, Standard Charter in Hong Kong, NatWest in the UK, organizations down in South Africa, organizations over in the US, um, doing exactly this type of thing. So we felt what would be helpful for a lot of people is to write up what we've seen and the benefits. And if I'm honest with you, it's been really interesting, the sort of twofold play that goes on in these things, because in many organizations, the strategy for these things and the way in which to get momentum in this type of exercise within an organization is the most fascinating piece. You know, once you can kind of get, once you can get backing and sponsorship and you can show to people the difference in the way that you do it has, then actually people get really excited with it. There's a real amount of momentum and actually it sort of galvanizes the organization around people building the future. I mean, many of these challenges to themselves are, it's like us sending a probe out into space to look for life. If you kind of think like these, the big incumbent organizations are ecosystems in their own right, given the vendor landscape and everything that's going on. And over the, you know, the period of a couple of hundred years, some parts have sort of ossified and uh, and, and slowed down in terms of the evolution of where those things are. Um, and very often the opportunity that we're given with these organizations, like say, whether it's in Singapore or whether it's in the US or Europe, is to push the boundaries and unthink some of the things that have made those organizations what they are today. Um, and that's fantastic. I mean, like I say, when it, whether it's still at Standard Chartered or whether it was Alison Rose at NatWest, there's a real commonality, I think, between the thinking of CEOs in those major positions, which is, again, if we don't do this to us ourselves, somebody else is going to come along and do it to us. I've always said this, I mean, any first step of any journey is usually somebody admitting there's a problem. And actually, you've seen many organizations now saying, look, maybe we don't know best on this. You know, we've seen retail organizations or technology companies that have been around for much shorter periods of time that we are adopting technologies and operational processes that we don't understand that now have operational efficiency and speed to market that we only dream of. So adopting those processes and practices for me is when you really realize that people mean it. And the nicest thing that I see with a lot of these things is about three or four months into these types of projects, you find people who we've brought in from those organizations or been sort of pulled together because of their expertise in the, in the incumbent, realizing that actually the way in which they've approached things before, whether it's classifications of customers or whether it's the process of delineating workflows rather than pooling people together to work really as teams, is the reason why they've been really impaired by their ability. Because most big incumbent organizations have got all of the customers, they've got crazy amounts of investment that they can make to things. But there's always been this thing that's got in the, the way of them doing it. And sadly, it's the way. If I'm not a bank, I'm one of these technology giants who considering going into financial services, would I actually want to be a bank? Or do I just want to offer bank-like services or banking services? And it's a project Google is taking with Citi in the US, where Google will provide it, but actually relying on Citi infrastructures. Goldman Sachs with Apple, Citi with Google. I mean, there is the potential to create layers of service on top of banking infrastructure as it sits. I think that requires a base level of capability of the incumbent to provide those things. Because if you look at the infrastructure and the architecture of many very large organizations, the KYC system is welded to the core banking system, which is welded to the, the AML system. And actually, it becomes a very significant limiter 
And while for Google or Apple, they can get the thing that they need, City and Goldman Sachs are not addressing that operational cost issue. What we can very quickly get, and actually what we've seen with happening with coronavirus now is banks are set up to deal with a certain amount of demand. If Apple with 800, 900 million people potentially wanting an Apple credit card, can Goldman Sachs' systems cope with running that type of velocity through it 24-7, 365? I mean, Goldman Sachs are in a, an interesting place because actually they actually have invested, obviously, with everything that they've done with Marcus to renovate the estate that they had. A Bo Hartman over at Goldman Sachs has done a, a lot of that work to get there. But many organizations have not done that work. And I think it's um, it's really interesting to see. I mean, those partnerships and definitely in Hong Kong and Singapore, we're seeing more and more partnerships between financial services organizations and places to allow distribution, whether it's, you know, it, whether it is big tech players or, you know, we've seen Razor kind of get into the market in Singapore. That's, you know, an amazing partnership because essentially if you can embed financial services into the place where it's most relevant, whether it's an operating system or a, a mobile phone or, you know, whatever it is, then again, it comes back to the, can you do manufacturing of products and can you do distribution into services? I think the greatest thing on this is it's it's great to see big incumbent organizations get to the point where they go, we really, really need to change, but also maybe we really need to partner with other companies. I think that's quite a humbling experience for a lot of those guys. And I think it will mean the industry comes out of it um, better than ever. As the world changes to be 24-7 access, systems that were built for overnight batch processes to reconcile positions, you're taking systems and running them at a red line, aren't you, in terms of the throughput that you can kind of put through some of these things. So it is an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, as, as any points of evolution, the market context dictates the needs for systems or change within organizations. But it is great to see these you know gigantic players actually taking the steps that they need to to be relevant in today's climate. So open banking, of course, UK have been a leader. How do you see this evolving? Will we get open insurance, open anything? Australia has taken the different approach of seeing or the customer data rights, it's called, to open everything. Where are we on that journey? I mean, it's been a really interesting one with the thing that's happened with PSD2 and then sort of onto everything that the CMA9 have done with open banking here. I mean, it's been a slow burner to get to where we are today because, again, a lot of the technological difficulties of the big incumbent organizations to embrace APIs and microservices, particularly to kind of expose things in a way that was stable and that actually people could do interesting things with. As always, it's not really about the technology, but it's about the problems that it solves for people. And again, bizarrely, everything that's happening with coronavirus right now, we're seeing people picking up APIs from open banking and starting to solve new problems that people actually have today. So I'd say it is working. I'd say it's sad that it took a regulatory mandated thing to get us to the point where actually people needed to embrace it and move forward. I think there are very few banks, BBVA being one of the few examples of people who really have embraced exposing APIs and not only exposing APIs and data, but working with third-party developers in a, a very sort of different way. And most other organizations have really seen this as a threat. If you look strategically at that, people are defending what they have rather than looking at what the potential of the future is. And actually, in 
in a micro, that's their strategy on this. But I think if you extrapolate that out, that's probably the macro view of actually where their strategies really have been for, for a decade. We're number one, let's defend the territory. So to our point, given the fact that most regulatory uh, regimes globally are increasing competition within those landscapes, then actually big banks have been used to defending smaller banks or smaller players for, for decades. And now now that we've got the Apples and the Googles and the Amazons and the you know the, the big tech players, the raisers of the, the world coming in and being really challengers of equal size and scale in many bigger people like Apple are top or second largest company on the planet, aren't they, at this stage in terms of where they're at? So, you know, for the challenges to the banks now to not be other banks, but really to be other organizations that people genuinely love. The brands that are challenging financial services right now are very different. And that offers a, a very different challenge for those companies to respond to it. Now that they've been forced into it in the UK, then actually, you know, we're really starting to see the benefits. And I think the best thing right now is many of the things that are coming through to respond to the changing landscape with coronavirus are using open banking, but not really having to talk about it. It's about what it does for the consumers, not really how it's been made. And I always say, it's like, I've no idea how a combustion engine works and neither does anybody in my family. But the fact that when I press the accelerator, then it moves forward is awesome. Same with open banking. Nobody really cares about APIs and all that type of stuff. As an industry, we've geeked out about it for the last uh, last five, five or six years. But when it starts really impacting the services that are delivered to people, that's when it really matters. I mean, it's good to see in most regions we work, people are really getting ahead of the curve. They're seeing what has happened in Europe with PSD2 and what's happened in the UK with open banking and really getting ahead of that curve now because they can see that it will come to their region. I'm seeing banks in you know South Africa adopting the same schema from an API perspective because it's turning into a global standard. And as you say, you know, in Australia where people are kind of moving to much more of a sort of an open data framework where the data is the consumers, it's not the organizations, you know, they merely hold it on their behalf. It's leading us to a place where uh, and highlighting many other issues across the system that we have. You know, identity is an area where particularly it's it's sort of pointing to real gaps in the capability both locally in regions and, and globally also that actually without really addressing it our ability to do open data and provisioning of access and, and really put people in control of the things that they have and understand where their data and understand where the information is being really used. I think when it comes to the opening of platforms, when it comes to the continued sort of push towards this, it's definitely going to be an even evolution rather than a revolution. But I think it will definitely be an evolution that's driven by delivering value to consumers. Those things that do that will then just become the new norm. The things that actually look really, really interesting, but don't really deliver value. I don't really see a great deal of take up from a consumer perspective. We went through this with the mobile phones to some extent where you were locked into the when there was a pain to change your mobile phone provider because you had to change your phone number. And once the phone number became portable, then there was an increased competition. So if open banking ultimately leads us to portable bank accounts and uh, takes the friction out of actually changing your provider, I think that would be the competitive catalyst to really drive innovation forward. I know Imran here at um, everything that we're doing with open banking in the UK is, is very passionate about portability of account numbers and, and everything that would sort of drive there. To your point, actually, when that started to happen in terms of it being your phone number that you could move around different vendors. Personally, I think if the banks are relegated into that commodity layer within the industry, I think that would be a really dark time for banking. Because I think if you if you kind of look at the landscape that we sit in now to, to sort of continue on with your the metaphors around uh, 
uh, mobile network operators. I mean, in the, in the place that we're at right now, I don't really care what my network is. You know, nobody really cares what that little logo is in the corner. And actually, I mean, it wasn't long ago that the mobile network operators were the kings of the world. You know, they were the guys who owned the SIM. They were the guys who owned access to data. They had control on the costs and the monopolies around SMS costs and everything that kind of went with it. Through a series of bad steps on their part, they have been relegated into a commodity that actually creates and, and allows almost no differentiation between the two of them. If I've got O2 or EE or Orange, it makes no difference to me. My service is created by the experience of the person who owns the handset and who owns the operating system. And the reality on what comes then is Universal Bank is really predicated on your ability to cross-sell and upsell to your consumers. In many instances, you know, you know this from your, your background, product lines are priced because you expect somebody to own 2.3 products or something in terms of the, the standing, particularly within a retail banking sense. Uh, I know it varies into other sort of walks of banking, but if actually your products become so heavily commoditized that actually they are relegated to being those dumb pipes right at the bottom of, the, of this infrastructure, any industry where that has happened, the only play that they can have is to become painfully cost-effective in terms of the operational cost and the, the unit economics that there's there to, to run those organizations and create those products. And we know from where banks are at right now, while they have all of the consumers and all of the spend, the unit economics of actually running individual products in those organizations is a million miles away from where it is with, with the fintech. Tom Blomfield at Monzo have said cost them about five to seven pounds to run an account right now. And if you're sitting in a, a big incumbent, it's going to be 180 to 250 pounds to run an account. The challenge really is if those big incumbent organizations give up the customer interaction, in many instances, lose that brand affinity with building the future and, and helping people manage the, the world we live in when it comes to their finances. The relegation to those dumb pipes, I think, can lead to a real unraveling of the fundamental business model of many of these organizations. And that's a pretty terrifying prospect. Uh, again, if you're a senior banker listening to this, that's the reality you're sort of walking into right now with maybe not even knowing it. Pure capitalist and especially your comparison of saying the incumbent banks are almost 30 times more expensive to process the same stuff down these pipes and provide the same level of service. It's a bit like coal-fired plants and we've shut down all the coal mines a few decades ago. Maybe it's time to get to the next generation of that infrastructure banking as well. I think so. I was too young to remember Maggie Thatcher shutting down all the mines when that was happening. I, I vaguely remember clips of it on TV, but I'm a little bit too young for that one. The similarities is, is definitely there. Mm. I mean, in banking, it's shutting down of the branch network. I think if you look at even organizations that have always been predisposed to doing it one way, I mean, look at BP. You know, BP have been so focused on gas for such a long period of time, but are investing now more than well, almost anybody, I think, at this stage in renewable energy. Because actually what you've got to be aware of, both in the micro of your revenue model today, but the macro of the, the trend of where the industry and where uh, the needs of the globe and where the needs of your consumer are going, is you've got to hold those two things and invest in things that essentially make the thing you're doing today redundant. Because if we continued mining coal right now, it's probably not going to be the way that the future will work out. If we continue constructing financial services products in the way that we do today or the way that we have done for the last 200 years. And this really gets to the point of why fintech exists. Banks have been doing that. You know, in a, in a digital world, selling digitized products leaves this gigantic gap between what the consumers actually need to live their lives on a day-to-day -day basis 
markets and what banks are actually providing. Now, fintech really has just looked at this gap between these two things. This opportunity that just sat on the table here of what consumers really need to live their lives, whether it's retail banking, whether it's buying stocks, whether it's running a business, all of these gaps between this thing, literally is that's just what fintech is. I mean, it sounds it sounds stupid when you say it out loud, but it's just opportunity left on the table. And in comes a bunch of entrepreneurs with good backing from an investment perspective and a can-do attitude. And um, fintech was born. Last big question. I wanted to cover your 11FS foundry and understand for the listeners what it is, what it can do, what's the positioning. So it's a pitch time. I mean, our CTO, Ewan, used to be the CTO of Nutmeg, a sort of wealth management organization. But before that, actually Betfair, which is a gigantic betting organization. I mean, he often jokes that banking and betting are very, very similar. It's about managing risk. It's just a different license at the end of the day, essentially, in terms of what it's providing. So he's not a, you know, not really a traditional banker in that sense. But actually, when he created the in-play capability at, at Betfair, what they did there was really look at what the, the need was of the consumer and actually what the difference real time is to that. And if you're running a book on the World Cup final, or let's say the Olympics, you know, running a thing on the Olympics, and you've got like hundreds of millions of people watching it. And as the wind changes direction, or the sun glints over the sideline, you're changing your odds because of the impact that will have on the performance. And you're able to do that with hundreds of million people are watching it and surface all of that up to people to make bets on a second by second basis, then banking has been left behind because, you know, mortgages and lending and all of those things pale in significance in terms of complexity as it is to that. So for us, what we've sort of faced into with Foundry, and I should say, I mean, rather than going the traditional route of building what we think is the right thing to do and then coming out three years later with the answer, we've done it in partnership with DMB, who the uh, biggest bank in the Nordic region, to build out what we think is really the answer to that problem. And the problem really that we are facing into is with all of the intricacies and the interweaving of all of these different services, as well as if you were to aim to take 70 to 80% of the cost out of the back office, what would that technology look like? And what we've done is we've collapsed all of the monoliths. We've created single engines that can create any financial services or to a further point, non-financial services product and built it from the ground up. And it's, um, you know, the partnership with DMB has been phenomenal. They've been honestly the best partner that we could ever have hoped for in that, that sense, because they have a very strong belief of where they see the industry going, which aligns very well to ours. They've got a great sense of humor, which is always great and a great partner. And we've been able to establish really, really honest and open communication with them from the get-go, which is really, really good. Foundry for us is what we think the future of banking technology looks like. And over the course of the next six months or so, there'll be some pretty interesting announcements, I think, for everybody on who else shares our vision in terms of where that's going as well. From the way you described it, this is then more comparable to Thought Machine, which is also relatively open engine-based and not predefined product. I know Paul and the guys at Thought Machine really, really well. In fact, you know, we've sort of worked with those guys in the past to introduce them into certain places to make sure. And and, and again, I think that plays a big part on the fintech community is a very close-knit community where we're sort of all in this together to move the industry forward. What I'd say is, is probably different between what we do in, in Thought Machine. Paul is, uh, and the team that they've constructed are amazing technologists, but what they want to be is the layer as close to the tin as you can be. And that's great. You know, the work that they're putting in to create that really efficient, low-cost ledger system is a thing of beauty. What we're trying to do with Foundry uh, moves a lot higher up into the stack as well. Because 
because actually what we're sort of finding with the banks that we're building and the propositions that we're building is the complexity really comes not just from a ledger perspective, but actually in terms of the very quick and very cost-effective integration of third uh, third-party services mm-hmm. or any additional services around the piece. Well, I'd say Thought Machine is the base level engine, uh, the base level ledger. What we're doing is the core banking system, but actually that full stack architecture. Because when it comes to creating your operational capability for us, again, going back to that, it's not what you do, it's the way that you do it. You know, the advantage that the fintechs have got right now is continuous integration, continuous testing, 100 deployments a day. It's the whole of that ecosystem, the operational capability that you build around your technology. I come back to it's like when you look at Facebook or you look at any, you know, you look at Google or whoever, they don't really talk about microservices and technology. They talk about their operating rhythm and their cadence and their culture. But those things are a a symptom of their technology that they've got in place. So for us, you know, Foundry allows us to work in the way that we work with everything that we do. And really in the way that we have done with a lot of things that we do at 11FS, we've built it in the way that we work ourselves and that we found allows us to be abnormally successful in the things that we're doing. And now we're exposing that to big organizations to get on board and, and work in a different way as well. Super. Thanks for the positioning. Very short last question. And you said it was one of the interview questions that you're using. So I want to put it back to you. What's the thing that you can still be best at doing even with a hangover? We ask that question a lot because what it tries to, what we try to do with it is to get people to, to really think about the thing that they're most passionate about doing. It's not really about coming into work with a hangover. Hopefully not many people do that, although there are occasions for celebrations and Christmas parties and all sorts of stuff where that does happen. But for us, it's about understanding this thing that you're so passionate about that even below 100% capacity, you're still able to do it better than anybody else. I think for me, I mean, there's, there are times where uh, compartmentalizing things is so critical. And I think particularly as a CEO of a business, your ability to continually set the tone for other people, whether it's passion, whether it's positivity, whether it's delivering communications. I think I've got to the point now, if I'm honest with you, because of the style in which I deliver the things to people, I say what I mean and I mean what I say. Therefore, whether I'm, you know, whether I've had two hours sleep or whether I'm jet lagged to hell or whether I'm whether I've got a hangover then talking authentically to our people is the thing that I can always do best wonderful thanks very much David brilliant conversation I really appreciate you taking the time and taking care of the global community during this time no problem at all thank you so much for having me on happy to come back whenever the invitation is there